Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, December 22nd, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. And we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us, to help us explore these challenges in national security. Uh, today, we're going to return to one of the most important national security topics for America. Uh, we're going to discuss China and Taiwan, the regional situation and, and, and related topics. And with us today is David Sauer, who might be familiar to you if you've been a longtime listener to National Security This Week. Uh, David Sauer is a native of Faribault, Minnesota, and a graduate of Gus Davis Adolphus, where he earned a Bachelor of Arts in Chemistry. David also earned a Master of Arts in Security Policy Studies from George Washington University. David was a career case officer with the Central Intelligence Agency and served multiple assignments in Asia, including two tours in Taipei and one in Beijing. He also studied Mandarin from 96 to 97 at the Foreign Service Institute. David Sauer was promoted to the Senior Executive Service uh, in 2017. And David joined us back in July of this year to discuss human intelligence, or HUMINT, as both a collection capability and as an operational intelligence mission. David Sauer, welcome back to National Security This Week. Well, John, thanks so much for having me again, and I wish you a good morning. I want to wish you and all the listeners a happy holidays, and thrilled to be here to talk about a very important topic for for the United States. Yeah, we have we have a lot to cover today. Uh, Taiwan and, and China has been in the news quite a bit, so I've been looking forward to this show for a while. Uh, I think it's going to be best if we sort of break this discussion today down into sort of three segments. And I'd like to start with uh, governance, the rule of law, and economics, because that's a that's a big driver of uh, a lot of the calculations that governments make when it comes to national security. Uh, and maybe it would be best if we gave our, our listeners just a short or- overview of the differences between the People's Republic of China and the Republic of China. Uh, okay. So you served as a career intelligence officer working right alongside with a lot of the career diplomats in the State Department. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain sort of what the one China policy is for America, what, how we followed? I mean, what does that mean, one China policy, when we're really talking about two what, what appear to be very different countries? So that that's, uh, was a mechanism devised in the, you know, really by the uh, Nixon and Carter administrations about how to formalize our relationship with the People's Republic of China, and to, but yet to be able to have some type of relationship with the Republic of China, an unofficial robust relationship with uh, uh, the uh, Republic of China. And uh, that's man- that one China policy where we recognize the People's Republic of China as legitimate government of China um, has been in existence since 1979-1980. Uh, and that allows us to have official, re- uh, official relations with the, the government in Beijing. Yet uh, through the Taiwan Relations Act and the three communiques, 
that allowed us to build up a, uh, a robust, unofficial relationship with uh, the government in Taiwan, the Republic of China. Mm-hmm. So do we have... Do we have like an official U.S. diplomatic presence in Taiwan? No, and it, I mean it's gotten uh, it's an unofficial. We have a representative office at the American Institute in Taiwan, and over time, it particularly uh, it, the Trump administration really changed the rules about engagement with uh, Taiwan government officials, uh, allowing for you know really more quasi-official relations with. Uh, with the Taiwan authorities. And uh, so it never used to be the case that Taiwan government officials could go into the State Department to have a meeting. Well, now you can. Um, Or uh, the Taiwan representative in Washington, D.C., he lives in a mansion called Twin Oaks. And I've actually been there. It's a beautiful mansion. But typically U.S. government officials would not be allowed to go there because that would violate the one China policy. So those relationships are are very – had been uh, much more strictly observed. Uh, For example, overseas, if there was a Taiwan – had their national day – U.S. embassy employees typically would not be allowed to go to those type of things because okay. it would be so a, a, a violation of the so-called One China policy. Okay. So from Beijing's perspective uh, in the People's Republic of China, they look at Taiwan as a province of their nation. Right. They they do, and they, they continually – you know, kind of spout that narrative. But, I mean, you got to really go back in history for what took place. Now, Taiwan was part of the um, – the Chinese Empire, the Qing Dynasty. But in 1895, uh, the Sino-Japanese War, the Qing Dynasty was forced to give Taiwan to Japan, to, Japan, to the Emperor, Empire of Japan. And that um, they ruled Taiwan for the next 50 years, so from 1895 to the end of World War II to uh, 1945. So the people of Taiwan... At that time, they all learned Japanese. They had, I mean, that was their education was in Japanese. And then at the end of 1945, when Japanese lost, the United States and the winning allies, you know, the Republic of China, then was the legitimate government in China. Mm -hmm. um, Under Chiang Kai-shek. Under Chiang Kai-shek wanted Taiwan back. And so they were given, Taiwan was taken from Japan and given back to back to China and they brought their troops in, nationalist troops started to come back to assert the government authority over Taiwan. Well, I mean, the people of Taiwan, many of the people of Taiwan didn't speak Chinese and Mandarin (laughs) Chinese. And so it was like a foreign, another foreign occupier that came into. So, I mean, the history of Taiwan and China is very complicated Mm -hmm. and um, it's, and it's still unresolved to, to this day, and it's something that uh, right now is is of huge concern. And, you know, we're going to get to this, John, but, I mean, why it's so it developed in such a huge concern today is because of the Chinese, the People's Republic of China's massive investment into their military forces. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, we'll definitely cover yeah, that. Right. Uh, so, David, you're a career intelligence officer. How, how do you see the differences between... Uh, the People's Republic of China uh, and, and the Republic of China. And, and let's stay on this uh, topic of, uh, of governance, for instance. 
Uh, right. Maybe a little bit about the differences in their economies as well. Maybe, could you just comment on those two things, governance and, and economics? Well, uh, Taiwan is a vibrant, multi-party democracy. I mean, they really, in 1996, really held their first true democratic election. And in 2000, they and the Nationalist Party, the KMT, won that election. They were the ruling party from 1945 or 1949 after the Civil War ended until uh, 2000 when the Democratic Progressive Party, mostly a, a, a party made up of uh, Taiwan, more at their base of Taiwan independence thinkers, uh, independence, people who are believe in Taiwan independence. But it is today, I mean, it's a thriving democracy, which has, I mean, free press, freedom of assembly, you name it, freedom of religion. You can do all those things. And now Beijing, not so much, right? It's right, an authoritarian right. government run by the Communist Party and really uh, under the direction of one man who's concentrated his, the power of the party within his grasp, and that's the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. Yeah. And if you want to talk about the economy, we have a, a China, the PRC, is really a mercantilistic type of, uh, of economy, really uh, – um, you know, they talk about free trade. It's really not free trade. It's a trade in which they undercut the price of every um, amongst their competitors until they have a monopoly. Now, what's important for your listeners to understand why Taiwan is important, really important to the United States. It's the ninth largest trading partner, um, big uh, destination for agricultural exports. So is China, of course. But Taiwan is the center of advanced uh, semiconductor manufacturing with yeah. uh, Taiwan Semi. Right. And uh, it is really the, the biggest and most efficient company in making the most uh, sensitive, the most technically advanced semiconductors, which is really the, the fuel for this technological, yeah, digital... The, the modern economy. The modern economy. <laughs> Very so, good. And, and that, that's sort of a one of those linchpin pieces in what the global supply chain uh, has given us is that we're all deeply integrated in different countries around the world in these kinds of uh, global supply chains and Taiwan plays a, a really critical role in that. Right. Yeah. So you've uh, you know you've worked at embassy locations as as a CIA case officer you've seen your fair share of diplomatic negotiations um, we 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 both understand as as career national security professionals that there's a lot of signaling that takes place between countries uh, through things like press releases, statements from government officials, and what rank the government official is uh, who, who makes those statements. You know, all these things matter in diplomatic engagement. Uh, from your perspective, uh, David, what, what do you see, what do, you, what do the statements made by the People's Republic of China regarding Taiwan signal? I mean, we've seen a lot of those signals becoming stronger uh, over the past few months. How, how much of a crisis is American and international support for Taiwan, for Beijing, from their perspective? Well, they certainly don't like it, and they've made it quite well known that they, they don't like this uh, increased international support for Taiwan taking place. And I, I, I think uh, at the beginning of the Biden administration, when Secretary of State Blinken and a national security advisor uh, met with uh, Yang Jiechi. Jake, Jake Sullivan. Jake who, Sullivan. Who's actually here from Minnesota. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yang Jiechi. And, uh, I mean— 
talk about signaling, I think Yang Jiachi was very blunt in telling them, we're not going to wait forever for about Taiwan. We want to resolve this. Yeah. And you saw a flurry of activity on the U.S. side. You saw a deployment of U.S. military forces, et cetera, to send our own signal back to them and said, well, yeah, you're not going to do it by force. But Beijing has been very consistent. They're not going to allow any uh, separatist forces to divide the, divide the nation. And they really have focused on Taiwan to be um, – the reunification or unification with Taiwan to be the last piece of the great rejuvenation of of uh, the Chinese people. You know, before the show, folks, we were talking, John and I were talking about other diplomatic uh, of uh, signaling that's been going on. And it's been re- quite remarkable since that meeting between uh, Secretary of State and uh, kind of the head foreign affairs guy for the People's Republic of China, Yang Jiechi about how many different foreign leaders have come out and warned Beijing over Taiwan. And it is quite (laughs) remarkable over the past year how far out. We're going to talk about Japan a little bit later, but they've been quite out front, very un-Japanese-like in in warning China about the consequences to to them uh, and how dangerous that is for Japan if they were to be able to take Taiwan. Australia has done it. And I think just recently on December 1st, uh, the head of MI6 in the United Kingdom, the British Secret Intelligence Service, uh, they they, uh, uh, came out and he came out and just warned them about the danger for miscalculation. uh, That Xi Jinping is believing his own propaganda and that he uh, will – the danger of war is quite real because of that danger that they'll miscalculate their own strength and also miscalculate Washington's resolve to fight over Taiwan. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. And on that topic of signaling and, and what happens around the world, uh, I think it was Lithuania just had a, yeah. a bit of a kerfuffle with Beijing uh, over recognition of Taiwan. Uh, yeah, they opens, opened up a resi- <laughs> representative. Oh. Well, I had a little unplug there. Yeah, sorry about that. Can you can you hear yeah. that now? Okay. You know the they opened a uh, Lithuania opened a representative office in Taiwan and Beijing has retaliated economically, politically, etc. We're a little mic swapping here. We have a, a new guest that was able to join us this morning. Uh, and let me do a quick introduction, and then we'll continue on our our, our conversation. Uh, Mark Canning, who is also familiar to the show, has has just arrived. Uh, Mark began studying Chinese in 1979. He studied at the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, where he became proficient in Chinese, then spent three years as a linguist serving in the U.S. Army. Uh, After his stint in the Army, Mark secured a two-year teaching position at a university in Kaohsiung, Taiwan, before landing a position as a newscaster and trade editor for International Community Radio of Taipei. That was Taiwan's first English-language radio station. Mark joined the U.S. State Department in 1989, was given another full year of Chinese language study at the Foreign Service Institute, followed by a three-year posting to the U.S. Consulate in Guangzhou on the Chinese mainland. He was part of the negotiating team that secured the reliefs of the American EP-3 aircraft after the aircraft had a mid-air collision with a Chinese fighter near Hainan Island in April of 2001. Mark Canning retired from the State Department in 2018 and moved to Minnesota. He's been teaching Chinese at Concordia College Language Village, and he's been lecturing for Global Minnesota's Great Decisions Program. Mark joined us back in January to begin our discussions on China, and again in April to share with us his knowledge of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, Mark, welcome to the show. 
Thank you very much, John. I'm uh, embarrassed to say that I got the time wrong. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I thought it was 15 minutes early, and I'm 15 minutes late. That's all right. My apologies to no, the no KYMN listeners. But um, I'm happy. I guess we have another 40 minutes or so. Oh, yeah. Doing? We've got plenty of time okay, to take, tap into your knowledge and experience. <laughs> Uh, we we just were actually talking about sort of the diplomatic engagement that's been going on, uh, the signaling that's been taking place uh, between China, Taiwan, and the rest of the world, uh, the signaling between China and the United States, et cetera. Uh, I was just about to dive into some discussions on the, the military signaling that we see going on. So, uh, David, I'll start with you, and then, Mark, maybe you can comment on, on what David has to say. Uh, the People's Liberation Army Air Force and the People's Liberation Army Navy have both been pushing hard up against Taiwan's air defense uh, identification zone. Uh, we've seen large formations of PLA Air Force aircraft really penetrate that aid is. Uh, what is it that Beijing is signaling to Taiwan with those operations and even to America and other nations in the Western Pacific with these actions? Uh, I think we here in America perceive the actions to be very provocative in yeah, nature. Yeah. Uh, but from Beijing's perspective... Maybe these are just internal activities. Is that uh, is that kind of how they they view it? What no, they they mean it to be provocative. They're, I mean, uh, what they're trying to oftentimes when they do the large strike packages, there's usually U.S. military presence in the region that they're really trying to go out and you know practice their attack runs against U.S. military or show their own uh, strength. Uh, what that really is designed, but the more routine, and they're almost every day, practically, and in fact, they are every day now, they're trying to show the Taiwan that they're resolved to, they won't allow them to be separate from the mainland. And so that's what, uh, that's what they're trying to signal. I mean, more uh, mundanely, if you will, there's other reasons why they do it. Number one, by continuing to do this every day after day after day, they're really trying to, I mean, they run down the Taiwan Air Force, who if they sortie every right. time that there's an intrusion <laughs> into their aid is, they're, I mean, they're going to wear down. And, that, and that's one kind of a gray zone tactic to wear down the Taiwan Air Force. And really, they, they probably shouldn't, and I don't think they do anymore, rise up every time that the, the Chinese come in. The other is they gather intelligence. They gather all kinds of intelligence about uh, Taiwan's air defense network from that kind of intrusion. And right. so oftentimes they have a, uh electronic uh, component, electronic warfare plane that's accompanying in, in to collect signals on what the China, or what the Taiwans are doing with their radar systems, et cetera. Yeah. And, and Mark, what, what do you think? I agree with everything you said. Um. All right, Mark, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not an expert on the military hardware. I'm, I'm more uh, – my experience has been with diplomacy, uh, both historically, you know, going back a long time, um, and what's happening today. So I think he's right there. By testing, they learn a lot about uh, Taiwan's capabilities, but they also uh, run down the, the – capabilities because planes can't keep flying day after day after day and, yeah. and so so we we've uh you know on our shows when i've had the two of you on individually in the past we've talked a little bit about this concept of the tools of national power mm -hmm. and and how you apply those tools diplomacy information military and economic power uh that's really the art of statecraft uh do you, from your perspective as a career diplomat, do you see Beijing starting to move away from or abandoning diplomacy on the Taiwan issue? Are they moving more towards the military tool of national power? Uh, at the risk of putting some of the KYM and listeners to sleep, I, I may introduce <laughs> some historical notes here. But 
You know, I think you have to, it's helpful to see things from China's point of view. Yeah. And that, um, China right now is probably more powerful than it's been. Uh, my history, of, my knowledge of Chinese history gets a little weak if you go back more than two or three centuries. But certainly uh, over the last couple of centuries since America became a country. Uh, but during the 18th and 19th centuries, there were periods when China was quite weak. Uh, I think about uh, the first uh, Japanese Sino War in 1894. Uh, as a result of China losing that war, the Qing Dynasty had to give up a huge chunk of Liaodong Peninsula and the city of Dalian in the northeast, as well as Taiwan. Yeah. And, and so they lost that there. In the first Opium War, the 1840s, they lost Hong Kong to the British, and they, they also lost Macau. Uh, as China became stronger, they, they took these places back. And Taiwan is the last piece. And China, as I said, right now is probably stronger militarily, economically, politically. Xi Jinping's hold is, is pretty strong right now. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's natural for them to use every tool they have, diplomacy as well as uh, in the military, to try to get things back. And I'll ask both of you, uh, and, and Dave, you and I were talking about this uh, in the green room before we got in here, but uh, China has sort of, they're peaking out on their capabilities uh, and maybe in a little bit of decline. Is the time now or in the, in the next few years uh, for them to make this decision about whether or not they're going to forcefully unify or... Or what do you think? I, I just want to go back real yeah, quick to sure. the diplomacy side of things. I mean, historically, China and Taiwan always have some form of communication going back and forth. And sometimes it's certainly below the level of radar for U.S. policymakers to see it. But there usually is some form of contact, some form of dialogue going on. Particularly when the Guomindang was in power, not so much when the DPP well, was in I, power. I, I, <laughs> even during those times, even, I mean, they've always, there's always some form of dialogue. A lot of times it's to collect information on the other party, on the other power. But uh, in 2016, all that was cut, at least the quasi-official communications between uh, the Taiwan authorities and the Beijing government was all stopped. Yeah. And so th there isn't any dialogue. They cooperated on law enforcement issues, on drug type of things, mm -hmm. and all that is halted as far, starting in 2016. And, uh, you know, they there was a large, from 2008, when there was a KMT government, to 2016, they opened yeah, it's, up... It's worth pointing out what, what happened in 2016 and why did it end, and well, right, yeah. because uh, the, the, the Tsai Ing-wen won the election, and, and she's a representative of the Democratic Progressive Party, and which is perceived to be a very independence-leaning type of political party. And uh, at that point, Beijing halted. There was a large influx of Chinese tourists that were spending a lot of time in, <laughs> in Taiwan, and Beijing just said, nope, no more, that's done. And they hoped to create an economic crisis so that... Tsai wouldn't win re-election, but that didn't work out so well for him with yeah. the, everything going on in Hong Kong. Sorry, Mark, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. but yeah. No. Uh, remind me again, what was the question? No, that's okay. Yeah, we got to go back <laughs> yeah. to the question. <laughs> so for, for the audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are retired Foreign Service Officer Mark Canning and retired CIA Case Officer David Sauer. And we're discussing China, Taiwan, and the regional issues. Uh, so, gentlemen, let's, we've been focusing very much on the China-Taiwan calculation. Uh, let's expand out to the region a little bit, and then we can come back to, to China-Taiwan. 
Uh, Mark, I'm going to start with you because you served in in uh, in South Korea. How how does South Korea view this situation between the People's Republic of of China and the Republic of China? Uh, South Korea is in a difficult position because China is the number one trade partner for South Korea. Um, they're security allies with the United States. We have a, a mutual defense treaty, even, but um, South Korea has not spoken out. Uh, as strongly in defense of Taiwan as perhaps, say, Japan has. Um, and Especially so, recently. Very recently, yeah, yeah. yeah. Shinzo Abe's statement, I think, was got a lot of attention in the press. Uh, so South Korea has always walked a very fine line um, in managing its relations with China. The, it's natural for them to have strong ties to China because of the economic ties, uh, for many years, the number one destination for overseas South Korean students was the United States. And they, at one time, they, they were among the top two or three, I think, in the world as a source country, more than 100,000. But a few years ago, that um, stopped, and now the number one destination for South Korean students is China. Mm-hmm. So more and more of them are studying Mandarin and seeing their future linked with China. Okay. And so... Um, I think South Korea, they'll, I don't expect to see them coming out publicly and doing things that will harm their own interests in China. Okay. Mark, just a follow-up on that. What do you think, I mean, there's an election next year in South Korea, a new presidential election, right. and, and President Moon has been, I mean, perceived as being pretty pro-China. I mean, and his party looks like it's maybe going to lose the next election. I mean, the change in government... Uh, is there a chance for a more um, South Korea being more attuned with the United States? And secondly, what impact do you, I mean, North Korea, of course, the threat from North Korea. I mean, do they, and they understand they need China and they live in a tough neighborhood, but, you know, if there's a Taiwan crisis, don't they really have to focus on North Korea? A uh, lot there in that. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so Moon Jae-in, he, uh, South Korea is interesting because they only let the president have one five-year term. Yeah. So his term will be up uh, next spring, and by May of uh, next year he'll be gone. There'll be an election before then. Um, he's, his family came from North Korea, so he has relatively strong emotional ties to North Korea. And he, his number one platform when he ran was to try to uh, push forward better ties with North Korea, a peace treaty. They're mm-hmm. still trying to get the Americans to come on board and, and sign an end, a formal document ending the Korean War. Um, but typically, South Korean politics, uh, the pendulum swings between a very liberal party and a very conservative party. And the, the conservative party usually has stronger ties to the American military and is less uh, open to negotiating or some kind of rapprochement with North Korea. So it's it's not unreasonable to expect that the next election will bring a more conservative government to power. And, and let's let's move to Japan because uh, Japan has uh, parts of their uh, territory that are very very close to the north end of Taiwan. Yeah, Okinawa um, is only about four hundred and fifty right. miles away, and we have a lot of American troops there. And yes, yes, we do. yes. Yeah. We do. so from your perspective, Mark, uh, why don't we start with you on this? How does how does Japan view this situation over Taiwan? Uh, Japan sees if China were to take over, it would be a threat to uh, Japan's interest. And that, that's very close. That's like uh, the enemy moving from, say, Miami to Chicago. You know, it, it's much closer, and, and that raises the tensions when you have uh, opposing forces 
brought into physical proximity like that. But it's interesting, you know, Japan took over both um, South Korea and Taiwan as a result of the uh, Treaty of Shimonoseki in in 1895. Mm -hmm. Um, The South Koreans still resent the hell out of Mm -hmm. Japan for running their country and, and what they did. Taiwan, it's more like, uh, I don't know if you remember that scene from um, The Life of Brian with Monty Python where they said, you know, what did the Romans ever do besides giving us a legal system, (laughs) indoor plumbing, you know, all the benefits that we got from it. The people in Taiwan, for some reason, don't seem to resent Japan as much. And so relations between Taiwan and Japan are pretty good. Relations between uh, South Korea and Japan are, they're not good at all, in fact. So, yeah. Um, yeah, Japan has historical reasons to be tied to Taiwan and also because of the, the proximity issue that you pointed out. Okay. And David, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with Mark. I, I mean, I, I think we, we were talking about it earlier. Okinawa Prefecture, the closest island to Taiwan, is only, it's less than 70 miles yeah. from Taiwan to Yonagi. Yeah. Y- Yonagui, I think, or Yonagui. I say it wrong. I don't speak Japanese. But it's very close to uh, Okinawa Prefecture. I think over the past year, we've seen a sea change in the Japanese government and how it views Taiwan. They've been much more vocal about uh, tying Taiwan's security to Japan's security. You saw the deputy prime minister at the time, Taro Aso, make a statement about that. If China were to take um, Taiwan, then it's a real threat to Okinawa, back to what Mark had said. Uh, their defense white paper lists uh, uh, Taiwan, the Taiwan Strait as a area of concern. The new de- uh, ta- uh, Japanese defense minister is Shinzo Abe's younger brother, uh, Noble uh, no, Kishi or Nishi. Sorry, I got my Japanese That's is okay. bad. Kishi, I think, and he is... Um, He's got close ties to Taiwan, historically close ties to the Democratic Progressive Party in Taiwan, the DPP. And him becoming the defense minister really sends it, I think, sends a very strong signal to, to China that Japan is going to take a, take a stand. You mentioned uh, Shinzo Abe's, the former prime minister, has been prime minister for a long time, comments on on uh, Taiwan. I mean, what a disaster it would be for China to try to unleash a war to try to take Taiwan. And so there's been a big change between what China, Japan was always in the background, never wanted to be out front talking about uh, what Taiwan meant for their security. They always wanted the U.S. to be kind of taking the lead on that. And over the past year, that's really changed. And actually, Suga, Prime Minister Suga, when he came to the uh, United States, in the spring, he signed on to a statement uh, with the White House about, uh, you know, uh, the Taiwan Strait being of concern. And it's the first time that a joint communique between the U.S. and Japan uh, mentioned Taiwan since 1969. So, mm. yeah. you know, And you have the Quad, so, right. you know, Australia, Japan, India, and the United States, right. which is perceived at least as um, uh, an alliance against China. And um, South Korea has pretty steadfastly stayed at arm's length away from that thing. <laughs> right. There's yeah. been some talk about bringing them in, but they're always kind of hesitating and, and on the fence on that one. So, yeah. Yeah. And we hear in you know military strategy circles, national security circles, talking about uh, the way Beijing looks at the first island chain. Clearly, Taiwan is part of that, but so are the Japanese islands right. uh, part of that first island chain. And, and I think... I have to ask you, Mark. Has when in Chinese history did they ever, ever manage the Ryukyu Island chain at all? Was Okinawa ever part of 
the Qing Dynasty or the Ming Dynasty historically? Because uh, uh, I know uh, senior uh, Chinese leaders have indicated to the United States <laughs> senior leadership that the Ryukus used to be Chinese territory. So Yeah, their claim is pretty weak on that. I mean, uh, I think you could argue um, that Taiwan has gone through a number of hands over the years, you know, from the Dutch to uh, a guy named Kosinga who did pretty much what Chiang Kai-shek did. He tried to take over the mainland, couldn't, made a strategic retreat to Taiwan, started another government there with the intention of going back and retaking the mainland and never did. And um, there, There's... You had the Japanese for 50 years, and so even uh, Taiwan um, has been in a number of hands. The the thing that I see is that nobody has ever consulted the indigenous people of Taiwan for their views on what happens. And and in some of the American documents, we've mentioned that the the people of Taiwan uh, have some rights in this issue and in in the settlement of this issue. Yeah. In fact... When, when I had you on uh, back in January of uh, this year, we, you actually brought that specific issue up. The indigenous people in, in Taiwan have really never had much of a vote in how a lot of this uh, plays out around them. Uh, re- very quickly, just very briefly, let's let's shift over and talk about the Philippines because they hold such a critical st- strategic position uh, vis-a-vis that relationship between the People's Republic of China and Taiwan and uh, possible places where American support could come from if, if relations between the U.S. and the Philippines improve. Uh, I, neither one of you are experts on the Philippines, I understand that, but from a diplomatic, from a geostrategic perspective, what are your thoughts on, on the Philippines? Uh, they're not as uh, dependent on mainland China as South Korea is economically. Uh, the Philippines does have some claim to parts of the South China Sea that conflict with China's claims through the Nine-Dash Line. Uh, there was a case a few years back in uh, under the UN uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea yeah. where the, the court ruled that uh, China was unlawfully uh, occupying parts of the, the sea that belonged to the Philippines, but China just ignored the that. Right. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think... Uh, the Philippines would probably be happy to have the U.S. help um, police the South China Sea, but I don't think that they see... uh, They have a little bit more wiggle room, for example, than South Korea does, Mm -hmm. and they're not as threatened, perhaps, as Japan would be. Yeah, and David, what do you think? I I don't think the Philippines wants uh, Taiwan to, in the heart of hearts, to unify with China. I think they like that unofficial relationship they have with the Philippines. Um, the Philippines and Taiwan. Uh, I, I think uh, Mark hit on a good point about uh, a few years ago about the UN case and also uh, I, I, the Philippine government, some quarters of it didn't think that the United States supported them strong enough in opposing Chinese efforts in the South China Sea. And uh, I think Duterte, when he became the president, he uh, said, you know what, we're going to have to have closer relationship with the with the Chinese so that we can help protect our rights in the South China Sea. And it really hasn't worked for them all that well. And they still are, are, have kind of skirmishes uh, with, you know, going back and forth with the Chinese about what's, I mean, verbally about what's taking place in the South China Sea. So uh, I, I think 
uh, from a geostrategic perspective, if the United States could use uh, Clark or, or former Clark Subic, Air yeah. Force Base or Subic in a Taiwan contingency, a military contingency, it, it might provide some benefit for our forces. And certainly uh, the relationship between the U.S. military and the Philippine military is quite close. And with a change in government in the Philippines with this next election coming up, that might change it, uh, a relationship to the better, uh, at least vis-a-vis uh, the Taiwan, uh, Sino-Taiwan issue. Yeah. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are retired Foreign Service Officer Mark Canning and retired CIA Case Officer David Sauer. We're discussing China, Taiwan, and, and related topics. And, and David, let me start with you on this third segment. Uh, you recently penned an article for The Hill uh, regarding uh, what the U.S. needs to do to get ready for a possible war with China over Taiwan. Could you summarize very briefly? Well, what that really, the, the, the purpose of the article was to try to promote deterrence. The U.S. needs to do more to try to deter China. And my view is that, uh, you know, militarily, the Chinese have all their forces in the region that, you know, that if they make the decision to go to war, and God forbid they do that, because it'll be a disaster for the United States, it'll be a disaster for China, and, and a huge disaster for the people of Taiwan. But if they do make that decision, they have the resources in the region. We're not going to have very much strategic warning. Right. And um, if they launch the attack t- right now, how long do you think the Taiwan authorities can... Hold out, hold right. out yeah. until the cavalry from the United States and maybe maybe Japan is able to intervene. How long is it going to take? I mean, it's going to take quite a bit to uh, assemble enough naval power, air power in the region to get there. So, you know, Taiwan can maybe hold out by itself a week, two weeks. It'll probably take us two to three months to assemble that amount of power unless we redeploy some of our assets more closely in the region. Yeah, and those so that was the whole thing. And those diplomatic negotiations are going on. Uh, you've probably seen some of those, Mark. The diplomatic negotiations between to, whom? To move U.S. forces ah, to forward okay. basing areas in the Western Pacific. Right. I'm, uh, I'm not 100% certain that war isn't going to happen, but I see all sorts of reasons why it's unlikely in the immediate future yeah, anyways. I agree. Um, so we can talk about a little bit about why I think it's not going to happen if this uh, is an appropriate time. Or, please do. Uh, well, please do. That's why we're here. We're going to have we this can, conversation. We can start with the Olympics coming up in February yeah. and the, the Paralympics in March that um, China is going to be in the world spotlight and on the stage alone. And, and it's going to have a lot of attention, a lot of people focusing on China. And so the last thing China is going to do is do something that makes it look bad while everybody's watching. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't like people to see when they're misbehaving. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> um, but also you have the, the five-year uh, Party Congress next fall mm-hmm. in October where Xi Jinping they recently, I think 2016, they changed the Constitution so he could have more than two terms. And so he's expected that we will uh, see him be given additional terms. Uh, and, and so I don't think – He's going to want to have a war going on while that uh, decision is being made. Uh, they just did their annual uh, economic conference uh, where they made the economic plan for the next few years, and the word stability was in that document that they released 28 times. China is very, very big on stability, and, yeah. and he's got things pretty well nailed down right now. So I don't see him wanting to risk a war 
with all of this happening. Also, China's economy is quite weak right now, and it's pretty vulnerable. And so uh, I'm not sure that they want to have a war while they're trying to fix the economic problems they have. Um, Tsai Ing-wen, the, the president of Taiwan, the one who's representing the, the Democratic People's Party, which is Progressive more Party. Progressive Party, sorry, thank you. Uh, it's more uh, closely associated with the uh, ethnically Taiwanese people. Um, her term is over in 2024. 20, yep. And so uh, I think there's reasons to say let's just be patient and wait and see what happens because under the Guomindang, they've had pretty good – her predecessor was a guy named Ma Ying-jeou, mm-hmm. and they had very good relations under him. And so, uh, there, you know, I think um, Beijing can wait. It's been 70 years something since Beijing ruled Taiwan. And so this isn't something that needs to get fixed this week. Well, so a couple of things from my perspective. I 100% agree, which I wrote in the article, that in 2022, I think there's very limited chance that Beijing's going to strike out. I actually think the chances of war are quite small. But there is a chance. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, trying, agree, yeah. and, and trying to reduce that chance by strengthening our position and also strengthening the Taiwan military, I think, is very much in our interest to do so, so that we reduce the prospects of Xi Jinping miscalculating in, uh, after he gets his third turn and he tries to think about his legacy in Chinese history <laughs> about, mm-hmm. is he going to be the guy that re- rejuvenates the Chinese people and unifies the country yeah. under his leadership. And if we don't think he's got the arrogance and the, uh, the uh, desire to do that, I think we're, we're sadly mistaken. Mm-hmm. So I, I, uh, while I agree with a lot of what Mark says, I actually think the Taiwan election is, is another reason why I think it's a very dangerous time. Because there's very limited chance that the KMT is going to win that election, in my view. They, they've they just got crushed in the, a referendum that took place over the past weekend, and that's about another show to go over. But it just showed that the DPP, it's right now the political party, the most preeminent political party in Taiwan, that's likely that uh, Tsai Ing-wen will be replaced by her vice president, a guy by the name of William Lai, Lai Ching-de. He was a former mayor of Tainan. And he's stated publicly that he's a he's a Taiwan independence worker. Well, that oh, just boy. makes Beijing <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. Do somersaults <laughs> and their head starts turning around. So that, uh, I mean, that is what, that's what China faces. They've been patient, but the longer they wait, Taiwan and the Taiwan identity is not going to be there. Nobody identifies themselves in Taiwan as a Chinese. They all say they're Taiwanese. So it's just that identity is moving away. They're se- even the language is separating. I mean, mm. Taiwanese, the way they speak Mandarin, some of the words are different, and they don't really understand each other yeah. sometimes. So the longer they wait, the more chance that it's going to keep separate. So let, let me ask both of you this. Um, and this sort of speaks to sort of, I guess, the the mindset that uh, the Taiwanese people, the Taiwanese government, uh, e- e- even the regional governments, and certainly the United States, they have to take this into a calculation. If you look at how the Chinese Communist Party dealt with Tibet, uh, how they've dealt with uh, the Uyghurs, how they have dealt with building up uh, bases in the South China Sea and, and ignoring international court rulings uh, on their claims under the UN Commission on Law and most recently, their their behavior towards Hong Kong. These, none of these outcomes bode well 
for a quote-unquote renegade province that is suddenly brought to heel under Beijing, as in if, if China reunified Taiwan forcefully. Does that strengthen the resolve on the part of the Taiwanese people and the Taiwanese government? Uh, should it be uh, part of the calculation for the United States to look at these things that China has done? What do you think? Well, I, I can take it. I would say two things about that. One is that uh, the people in Taiwan are watching what's happening in Hong Kong. China made a promise in 1997 to give Hong Kong 50 years of um, one country, one country two, two systems. systems. Yeah. Thank you. That didn't last very long. Uh, 23 years. <laughs> and it just got thrown away. And, and um, so they're obviously, they're aware that the, the one co country, two systems promise that's been held out, uh, that's, they're never going to accept that, especially now after what happened in Hong Kong. And going back to your uh, comments about uh, Tibet and Xinjiang, the man who was in charge of the subjugation policy in Tibet was a man named Chan Chuanghua. Uh, he brought in, uh, in 2014, Xi Jinping uh, took him from Tibet and transferred him to uh, Xinjiang to do the same thing. And it's the same playbook. You uh, arrest the dissidents and the intellectuals. You shut down the universities. You close the religious facilities. You stop the teaching uh, at the elementary level in the indigenous language. You bring in a pro-Beijing curriculum. He's doing the same thing in, uh, in Xinjiang right now. Mm. And, and the same guy... It's kind of, you know, in a way, that's Beijing's M.O. They don't go in a lot for shock and awe and, and the military hardware thing. It's more using the police and the, the organs of the state to slowly kind of wear away. Oh, another thing is bringing in the Han ethnic people. So you right. dilute the local population yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, it, it's... It's a pretty horrible thing. Some uh, countries, the Dutch and others, have ruled that it's genocide, but it, it you know, it's bloodless for the most part, the most and, it, and it is yeah. pretty effective. You haven't seen a lot of uh, free Tibet protests on, on Carleton campus recently, I suspect. No. Yeah, so... But if you're the people of Taiwan and you're watching that, what do you yeah, think? You, yeah, what do obviously. you think? Yeah. <laughs> right. You're thinking, I don't really want to sign on to that. Why would we want to do that? Yeah, yeah. right. So, sure. uh, so on that point, uh, I, I've read some articles lately uh, where the this U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity has been heavily debated about what you know how how forcefully should we come out in our support for Taiwan, and that ambiguity policy uh, may be causing more problems than it is helping the situation. Uh, David, you and I were talking about this before we came in here. Yeah. Um, Taiwan, as they do their defense planning, what they choose to purchase, is that is that helping or hurting them? Uh, should the U.S. be doing more to help build a Taiwanese defense structure to deter uh, the PRC from invading the, the People's Liberation Army? Uh, I'll start Let's, with you and Mark. Well, yeah, and, and really welcome Mark's views on this because, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a believer in strategic clarity. I, I wrote in a, a separate article on that the hill a few months ago but I, really I, I think strategic clarity is US policy after the president by my count three times <laughs> said we would defend Taiwan if it were attacked by China mm -hmm. and if that I mean that's pretty clear to me and I think it's very clear to Beijing and so I mean it's not just 
the president of the United States. And, of course, they tried to soften that blow after the fact by right. having the White House saying, no, no. <laughs> Jim kind of walked it back. Yeah, yeah. one China policy. But, hey, he said it. That's the president of the United States. He yeah. says policy. So I think the policy is strategic clarity. And if you read like Eli Ratner's uh, prepared testimony that is submitted to um, the House or the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, I mean, it talks about Taiwan as being a strategic asset to the United States. Um, And so I I think uh, Richard Haas, the chairman of the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, uh, former very senior uh, Department of State uh, uh, official, wrote an excellent article in Foreign Affairs uh, talking about the case for strategic clarity, making sure Beijing understands the consequences if it moves against Taiwan in inciting, you know, look at World, how World War One started, how the Korean War started, and making sure they understand the consequences to themselves about taking aggressive action, military action against Taiwan. Now, Mark, maybe we'll comment on that. Maybe go back to the. Uh, do you want to go back to the military stuff? Or well, Mark, I'll, I'll let Mark comment, and then I got some other follow-up questions. Yeah. Um I, you know, it, it is significant that the president used words like commitment. Um, and the presidents don't generally uh, wing it with sensitive issues and Ho- policy and hopefully so Hopefully not, right? No. So, <laughs> well, at least ha- most presidents. Most presidents, uh, Should yes. we say that? Okay. A few exceptions. <laughs> you know, yes. at, at one time we did have um, a mutual defense mm-hmm. treaty with Taiwan. It was signed in the 54 at a time when there was great fear of expanding communism and so forth. And then it was terminated um, 79, 79 by Jimmy Carter, although uh, the Constitution says that a president can only have an international treaty uh, with the approval of two-thirds of the Senate. And so it was approved by the Senate in February of 1955 and then signed by the president. But there's nothing in the Constitution about terminating treaties. And so Carter That's terminated that unilaterally. Um, in much the same way that, say, Trump terminated the JCPOA. It was uh, Obama never got the Iranian nuclear agreement ratified by Congress. And so anything that's just an executive order can be terminated by the next executive. But there's still a question about, uh, the legal question about whether he was able to do that. Goldwater and uh, Jesse Helms and Strom Thurmond, a number of conservative senators, brought suit against it. It went all the way to the Supreme Court in the cases Goldwater versus Carter. Um, but hmm. yeah, so we did have at one time we did have a, a, a legal commitment. I would argue now that we don't. But even in the uh, even with the Taiwan Relations the Act, Taiwan Relations know. Act. Well, if you look at the things the like the, the three joint communiques that we signed with uh, China, the language there there's a little bit of wiggle room inside the the documents themselves. But then if you look at things like uh, Reagan's signing statement when on the uh, the third of the three joint communiques that deals with arms sales to Taiwan or the Taiwan Relations Act, they're much, much uh, different in tone than the uh, agreements that we signed with China. You know, if you compare the two, it, the Taiwan Relations Act does suggest pretty heavily that we're uh, invested in Taiwan's security and safety. And, and so I think you can infer from that that there has to be some response, um, although okay. it's not a legal commitment the way it was under a mutual defense treaty. What I, what I also find remarkable today in a, a divided, partisan Washington, oh, D.C., yeah, yeah. is that almost complete unity on right. Taiwan, support for Taiwan, yeah. and really um, 
there's no more panda huggers in Washington, D.C. I mean, we're kind of making a fun of people who are more supportive of China. There's maybe more panda shruggers who are like, yeah, China's a big problem. We don't know what to do with it. But on the issue of Taiwan, you almost have complete bipartisan support for trying to, to support Taiwan as yeah. much as possible. And bipartisan support in animosity towards China. If 100%. you look at the, <laughs> the recent bill that was passed um, banning uh, products from Xinjiang that were made with forced labor, it was 428 to 1 in the House. Wow. So, Amen. Yeah. So we don't have a whole lot of time left. I want to ask uh, one more sort of hypothetical question about uh, China and Taiwan that might be a trigger, and then I'll let each of you sort of uh, conclude with any last thoughts you have. So a lot of times we, even in this conversation today, when we think about you know, China threatening Taiwan or forcing unification with Taiwan, we always think about the main island of Taiwan. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of places that are Taiwanese territory right. that are not on that main island. Uh, Kinmen County, which is right off the, the the coast of mainland China. A great place to visit. Yeah, there you go. Go. <laughs> uh, it's really cool. Pangu County, I Pangu. think it's called. Pangu. Pangu. Uh, yeah. So that's Pangu. a fairly a good-sized uh, set of islands uh, in, in the strait itself. What if China made a move to take Kinmen or Pangu? Uh, I'll jump in on this. Okay, I, I mean, I think they can... I mean, to me... It makes no sense. Uh, to, at least snap either up, up or not. Pangu is different. Okay. But Jimin or Matsu or Pradas Island, they can take those at their convenience. Right. And all that does really is, if they take it, that further drives Taiwan away. Really makes uh, a reaction from Washington and probably from Tokyo, uh, a strong reaction from it. And all it does is kind of internationalizes the issue. Uh, so they can wait until they deal with the main island to deal the, to do those things. Jimin is so close to, uh, I mean, to Shaman, they can swim across. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's not back in the bad old days of the 1970s, 1980s, where they, uh, Jimin was literally surrounded by huge minefields <laughs> and, and had substantial military forces on it. And I, we're really running out of time, but I always thought this was interesting. Uh, Chinese special forces, what they used to do to be able to graduate, they had to go across to Jimin <laughs> And cut off the ear of a Taiwan sentry and bring that back to, to bring that back to China to show that they were you know oh. the bad guy. So you know oh. it was a rough day, but Penghu is different. Penghu, um, you know that is an island closer to uh, Taiwan. Taiwan will absolutely fight over it because it's going to be perceived as being an advanced forward base for China to invade the mainland. Okay. So anything that that. Uh, to me, anything that draws international attention or uh, leads to an internationalization of the issue rather than – and doesn't solve it, it doesn't make a lot of sense for me to – for Beijing to try to do. Okay. Mark, what do you think? Uh, I agree. I, I think it's provocative without achieving much. And so, yeah. To be honest, I don't see uh, what either side gains – either Taiwan by declaring independence or the mainland by trying to invade. Um, you know, there are 193 countries in the UN, 180 of them representing about 99.5 of the world's population uh, have diplomatic relations with Beijing and don't recognize Taiwan. So even if Taiwan were to declare independence, the rest of the world would ignore it still because yeah. they're, they're tied to Beijing because of Beijing's economic opportunities. That's not going to change. So I well, don't see. I, I just <laughs> don't think 
nobody is uh, nobody in, that's a serious politician in Taiwan is going to sit gonna, there declare independence. Right. They have nothing to gain, and They're, it's so provocative. They think yeah. they are independent. Yeah. It's the Republic of China. Why, yeah. why do we need to <laughs> right. declare independence? So Extremely high living standards. It's a great place to live. I mean, yeah. It's a wonderful they have, place, they have right? So much to lose and nothing to gain. So right. I don't see them doing that, and I don't see a lot to benefit from the other side either. Except for the big difference is, is that China has invested massively into their military. And for what purpose? I mean, that's the thing that I think everybody's looking at their capabilities and saying, well, we, I can't, we can't understand why they would have the intent to do it, but we got to base our planning upon their capabilities, okay. which yeah. they have developed. I'll give you that. All right, so I'm going to give each of you one minute, one minute, uh, any closing thoughts you have on this situation between China and Taiwan. Uh, Mark, I'll start with you. Wow. <laughs> uh, I hope it can be resolved peacefully. There were periods, particularly under Jiang Zemin, where China was evolving, um, growing as an economic power, but also evolving towards a more uh, a country that complied with international norms and so forth. Not perfect, but it did look like as long as China kept on this path, that one day the two, you know, they could merge peacefully. It, there would be some benefit to the people of Taiwan to join it. Um, ever since Xi Jinping came in in, in uh, 2012, things have gone the other direction. And so I hope they can go back to evolving and, and settle this peacefully. I have a lot of friends on both sides, and, and I just as David said, war would be terrible for everybody. Yeah. So I, I'm actually quite pessimistic about the future. I just don't see how. I mean, if uh, if Xi Jinping continues in power and keeps pushing the way he has been pushing, and they develop their military power the way it's going, I, I just uh, I, I'm very pessimistic about the future. If they had done what Mark talks about and Jiang Zemin's kind of approach to things, although I, I wonder really what was at heart there, I think if they had taken a softer approach to Taiwan, it would be a much different situation, and it would be they would see a, a pretty strong economic integration, and which could lead to some kind of political confederation at some mm -hmm. point. But that's gone. Yeah, and I just don't see it moving back. So I'm. We'll have to do another show talking about some of these issues <laughs> moving forward. And then we'll talk more with Mark. Yes. All right. Uh, so we've unfortunately come to the end of, uh, of today's edition of National Security This Week. Uh, David Sauer, Mark Canning, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Always a pleasure to be on KYMN. Hey, exactly. Happy holidays, everybody. Yep. So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to joining or to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Uh, we'd love your feedback here at National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, so please take a few minutes to contact us and let us know how we're doing. Uh, finally, make sure you tell others about our live show and about the recorded shows available via streaming from the KYMN Radio website and about the show being available on podcast services. Have a great finish your week, everybody, and happy holidays. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.